uh, in years past. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. First of all, his name is eerily similar to mine. Uh, I am Reginald Lloyd Overstreet the fourth. So uh, now he is Reginald Larry Overstreet. So we're not officially the fourth because I've learned you have to have the same middle name. But Dr. Larry Overstreet uh, has had a historied career of training uh, young men and women and older men and women who are in seminary and college. Uh, he himself grew up in Michigan, but served the Lord over the last several decades all over the, all over the, the country uh, after getting his Ph.D. from Wayne State University in Michigan. And um, he, he became a seminary professor of pastoral theology and a number of other things for a stint in Winona Lake at Grace Seminary. Any Grace Seminary people out there? Grace College people out there? Yeah. Um, which is why I grew up here. So that's pretty cool. Then he went to Clearwater Christian College, then Northwest Baptist Seminary in Tacoma, Washington, which is why we live. My kids were all born in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, I went out there for seminary. Uh, I'm one of the, the young people that he trained to preach the word and minister the word of God. And, um, and it's an honor and a, and a joy for me to introduce him to my Community Grace Church family and friends and everyone watching. So he's going to come up and preach the word from Psalm 90. Let's give him a warm Community Grace welcome as he comes. It's a little bit unusual to get introduced by your son, but it's a joy beyond all imagination to think of what God has done in his life and the life of his family and six wonderful girls that I love dearly. I see two of them right there. Where are the rest of them? Okay, grandkids, where are you? Are they here? They're serving, okay. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a joy. And we're glad to be here with you today on this very important day. And I'm gonna get the clicker out of my pocket and turn it on because we're gonna go to work. And it says, here we go. Whoops. All right. I turned it on, and it's not working. Ta-da. Turn me on up there, guys. <clears throat> yep, that's working. All right. It's supposed to work, right? It's not working, Reg. There it goes. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> so we're in Psalm 90. <clears throat> And the psalm is focused around numbering our days. <clears throat> and that particular phrase is found in verse 12, which we will get to before too long. But I want to just stop and think a little bit about days, because days are really important. Let me just ask you, by the way, you can talk to me, right? It's okay if they respond? All right. What are some of your favorite days as far as a whole calendar year is concerned? What are some of your favorite days? Just give me some suggestions. Okay, I heard somebody say Christmas, all right, that's a one, and I heard somebody over here say birthday, 4th of July, 4th of July that's coming up very soon, Easter, Easter that's a special day, uh, you know, one of the days that uh, you don't want to forget is the birthday of people that are special to you, that happened to me once, by the way, I have never forgotten my anniversary, not ever, it doesn't even occur to me to forget my anniversary, we were married on my birthday, so that just that takes care of that one. However, back a number of years ago, my wife and I and Reg, Pastor Reg, and uh, his sister Lois, we were traveling around the United States 
and the schedule was totally out of sync and our whole life was just kind of different than normal. And I think we were in the state of Texas. We had been around the northern route and seen all the sites and down the Pacific coast and now we were coming back the southern. And we got out of the motel, we got in our van and I drove to the gas station early in the morning and my wife said, what's the date today? And I looked at my watch, I said, it's Thursday or whatever. She said, no, no, not the day, the date. I said, oh, it's uh, July the 27th. Oh, okay. And I started to fill up the tank with gas and I thought, you know, that really sounds like a familiar date. <laughs> and it was my wife's birthday, which I had totally forgotten. Here we were, you know, in Texas and I just, uh, that's the only time. <laughs> I've never forgotten it again. So there, there are days that you just want to remember. And birth date of your spouse happens to be one that you do want to keep in mind. Psalm 90 talks about days. Now, if you're like I am, I like to circle words in my Bible, and I like to connect them with lines and things like that. That helps me remember. I tell people I have a really good memory. It's just short. And so I need help to keep it in view. So I just want to run down through the psalm with you quickly. And you may want to circle some of these things like I've done in my Bible. Look at Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday. There's one. Circle that one right there. Drop down to verse 9. For all our days. There's another one. Circle that one. Look at verse 10. As for the days, there's another one, circle that one. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days, there's another one, circle that one. Verse 14, oh satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days, there it is again. And verse 15, make us glad according to the days, you get a, you get a feeling that something is happening in this psalm. There is an emphasis on the days of our lives. We have a tendency to think in terms of years. You know, I'm, my birthday, I'm 61 years old or I'm 10 years old or whatever it happens to be. But this psalm is not focused on all that. It's focused on days. And those days are critical. The title of the psalm tells us that Moses wrote it. Notice it says, A Prayer of Moses the man of God. I believe that he wrote this right near the end of his life. Moses has grown up in the country of Egypt, lived there 40 years. Then he left Egypt under stress, as you recall, spent 40 years out in the desert wandering, taking care of sheep, getting married, having a family, and then God called him to ministry at the age of 80. And he went back to Egypt and brought the people of Israel out of the country of Egypt, and they have been in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years, wandering. And it's at the end of that time, I believe, that Moses wrote this psalm. It's at the end of his life, it's at the end of this wandering, they've been in the Sinaitic Peninsula for 40 years, and now it's time for them to move across the Jordan River, go into the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel, and establish their new home. But Moses looks back at this 40 years in the wilderness. He looks back at the people that he had led 
the people for whom he had given his life. And as he looks at these folks, all of them young, remember the older generation had totally died off. Everybody that he was speaking to was under the age of 40. Everybody, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only survivors. So he's speaking to the younger generation, telling them to number their days. So it doesn't make any difference if you're Joshua and Caleb, who were over 80, or if you're in that younger generation, under the age of 40, whoever you are in whatever span of life you're in, it's time to number your days. And this psalm focuses on three critical reasons why we should number our days. So if you're looking at your outline notes that in your bulletin, we're going to start and take a look at what those are. And it didn't work. There it goes. Number our days. Whoops, we're not catching it all there. The idea is number your days, number one, because they are brief. Verses one through six. Your days are brief. Now, in contrast to our days, which are brief, the psalm opens up commenting on what God is, and God is eternal. Look at what it says in Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Who is this God? Moses starts out with the term, Lord, you're the master. You're the one in charge of it all. And then he ends in verse 2 by saying, you are God. You are the creator of everything. You are the mighty God who can rule everything. So you are the master of my life. You are the creator and ruler of my life. And everything around me I owe to you. You are my God. Notice he also tells us in verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, they were in the wilderness of Sinai. The wilderness of Sinai is filled with mountains. If you were wandering through the Sinaitic Peninsula, this would be the typical scene that you would observe. This is what you'd see wandering up and down the hills. You'd see things like this everywhere you looked. There are mountains and hills, some of them towering 7,000, 8,000 feet above the ground. And as you look at those mountains and you look at the majesty around you, you have to remember God is the one who put it all there. We had the joy of living in the state of Washington. Washington is a beautiful state. It is absolutely gorgeous. We lived in the uh, area where you could get up in the morning and you could be at sea level at Puget Sound and look up and see Mount Rainier, which is 14,411 feet high. How did all that get there? Well, it just evolved over billions of years. No, I think God made it. Indeed, Moses says, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth, as he talks about God. God's the one. He's eternal. He's the mighty God from everlasting to everlasting. But in contrast to that, if we can advance, we are temporary. People are temporary. And in that relationship, Moses starts out by saying, 
death is certain. Notice verse 3. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. A thousand years in your sight, Lord, are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God goes on for years and years and years. A thousand years are, are like yesterday to him. But you and I die. We will die. If the Lord doesn't come back first, we will die. You can be absolutely sure of that. I don't know when it's going to happen. I know that I have had a couple of experiences where I have literally been one second away from death. And I can tell you about one of those. And there I am. That was back in the 1980s. I made the first jump out of an airplane on June the 12th, 1982. I made my 169th jump on July the 18th, 1987, and then I quit. My wife said she was never going to jump out of an airplane with me. But if I sold all my skydiving gear and bought a nice motorcycle, she would ride with me. So I sold all my skydiving gear and I bought a Honda Goldwing. And we had that for years and we rode it thousands of miles. But in the meantime, I spent 169 times jumping out of airplanes. One of my occasions was especially pertinent. There I am coming down and here I am just getting ready to land, which is the way you're supposed to do it. But on my 14th jump, that's not exactly what happened. Now, let me give you a little bit of ideas of what was going on. It was October the 23rd, 1982. And on that particular time, I jumped out of the airplane about 10,000 feet above the ground, and there was a, a teacher, skydiving teacher, who jumped out right after I did. And so I'm here, he's here, he's watching me do some maneuvers. That's the idea. As you advance farther and farther, you learn how to do things. Now, when you're in a what they call a frog position, that's your stable position, your arms are like this, and your legs bend at the knees, so your feet are up in the air like that. And when you're in that kind of a position, you're falling flat and stable. You're falling at 120 miles per hour, 174 feet every second. You wear an altimeter. People say, do you wear an altimeter to tell you how high you are? And the answer is no. You wear your altimeter to tell you how low you're getting. <laughs> the idea is to open the parachute before you hit the ground. Now, when you're falling flat and stable, you're looking toward the ground, your, your belly is toward the ground, you can see the sky out of your peripheral vision. So you see the ground below you, but this, out of all the way around you, you're seeing blue. But they tell you over and over again, if you're in that kind of position and all of a sudden the sky disappears and all you see is ground, that means you have just dropped under 1,000 feet. That's bad if you're still falling fast. And on my 14th jump, that's exactly what happened to me. I was flat and stable. I was doing some maneuvers that I was supposed to be doing, which they had trained me to do, and everything I thought was going enormously well until all of a sudden the sky disappeared. And I'm still falling. 
I glanced down. My altimeter was right here on my chest. I glanced down at my altimeter, and it read 800. Now, figure it out. 174 feet per second. That's how fast I'm coming down. I'm 800 feet off the ground. How many seconds am I away from the ground? Not very long. I decided it was time to open the parachute. And it's amazing how your brain works really quick at times. And so I opened the parachute. Now, here's the, here's the contrast. When you're falling free fall, you're falling at 174 feet per second. When the parachute comes out and inflates, you suddenly are falling at 15 feet per second. That's why they call that difference opening shock. Because it slows you down from 174 feet per second to 15 feet per second pretty quickly, which is exactly what you want. When my parachute opened, the instructor on the ground was absolutely certain there was going to be a fatality at his drop zone, and he didn't like that at all. There had never been a fatality at his drop zone, and he did not want any of that to happen. But when my parachute opened, he counted how many seconds it was until my feet touched the ground. Eight. Eight seconds. Now, you're coming down at 15 feet per second. Let's check your math. What's 15 times eight? Oh, come on. Oh, great. Yes, who said that? Excellent. One, <laughs> 120. I was 120 feet off the ground when my parachute opened. You're falling at 174. If I had literally waited one more second, literally, I would have hit the ground at 120 miles per hour. I can imagine that would hurt. God wasn't done with me yet, and I came through that, but I did learn to watch the altimeter a little bit more carefully the next time I jumped. Life is brief. You can be sure of it. Life is brief. However long you live, life is brief. Look what it says in verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. In other words, your life is like a piece of grass in the Sinaitic wilderness. It comes up in the morning, and in the heat of the day, it just goes, and it's gone. Now, praise the Lord, the grass on my front yard lasts more than that. But in this heat, I've got to, have, I've got to water it a lot to keep it green. If I don't keep it green, it withers. Doesn't take long. If I don't keep it watered, it withers. Doesn't take long. He also says it's like sleep. Have you ever noticed if you go to bed, let's, let's just suppose you go to bed at midnight, you fall asleep at midnight, and you wake up at 3 a.m., maybe there's a thunderstorm, and you wake up at 3 a.m., what do you remember between 12 and 3? Basically nothing. You just don't remember that. It's just, it's just gone. He said, that's the way your life is. It comes, and then it's gone. It's over. Life is brief. 
like grass. Lifespan is brief. Our life is brief. Why is life brief? Moses answers that question. Notice what he says beginning in verse 7. Because our days are sinful. Number your days because they're brief. Number your days because they're sinful. And sin brings consequences. Notice verse 7. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We have been dismayed. Remember, Israel disobeyed God. God said, go in and take the promised land. And they said, no, no, we can't do it. And so they didn't do it. And God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. You disobeyed me, you're going to die in the wilderness. And that's exactly what happened. He says, verse 8, you've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Did you ever stop to think? Those things that you do in secret that nobody knows about, God knows. God knows. Those little things that you hide, nobody else sees it, nobody else hears it, God does. Secret sins. In the light of his presence. All our days, verse 9 says, have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. <sighs> and it's over. Just like that. Psalm 144 says, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And they are. Verse 10 goes on, sin brings death. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone and we fly away. At its best, life is short. It may last 70 years, it may last 80 years, but in view of the thousands of years that the earth has been here and God has been around, that's really brief doesn't last long. And the psalmist says something fascinating. He says, if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. What he's saying is, even your very best years have troubles in them, don't they? Now, I've had a lot of really good years. But I can't remember any year of my life that was totally, 100% trouble-free. I can't remember one. From the time that I was in elementary school, through high school, through college, through seminary, through all my ministry, through raising all my kids, I can't remember one year that was totally trouble-free. Can you? They're not. Life has problems. And it comes as a result of sin. We are sinful people and we bear the consequences of sin. And even in the very best years, there are difficulties, there are problems, there are troubles, there are heartaches, there are headaches, there are pains, there are aches, there are distresses. It comes with life. And sin brings confrontation, verse 11. He says in verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that's due you? If God can create the worlds 
and he does, he can, then how dare we think we can stand against him? We can't. So the psalmist says, verse 12, we need to number our days. Now I want you to stop and think with me. Let's put the next slide up about what happened in the wilderness. 40 years, about 2 million people died. There about 2 million people that came out of Egypt, maybe two and a half. And every year, on the average, that would be 50,000 people dying. Every year. On average, that would be 137 people dying every day. Do you think Moses went to all those funerals? I kind of doubt it. But just figure, all those years, people are dying. Two million of them dying, 40 years. They're all dying off. They had disobeyed God. They're paying the price of those sins. Number your days. Now, that brings us to verse 12, and verse 12 is what we call the fulcrum of the psalm. Now, for the last several weeks, Pastor Reg has been giving you some information about poetry and understanding poetry, and it works in the psalms just like it works in other kinds of poetry. Psalms, poetry often has a fulcrum. You say, okay, that's great. Aren't you glad you know that? But that you may be asking the question, what is a fulcrum? I'm glad you asked, because I have a picture of a fulcrum. There's a fulcrum. You all know what that is right there? That's a teeter-totter, right? Some people call it a seesaw. This thing right here in the middle, that's the fulcrum. It balances this half with that half. That right there is the fulcrum. It's the balancing point. And when you've got kids on each end of the teeter-totter that are roughly the same size, the fulcrum is right in the middle. And sometimes in poetry, the fulcrum will be in the middle. You'll have part of the poem over here, you'll have part of the poem over here, and the two halves balance each other. But not always. Sometimes the fulcrum doesn't fit if it's in the middle. Have you ever seen this kind of a circumstance? where you've got a big guy on one end and a small guy on the other end, and if something doesn't happen, the one guy sits on the ground and the other guy is up in the air, and that's the way it's going to be. So when you have that kind of situation, you either go play some other thing, or, show the next one, you move the fulcrum. See, it's over here now. Short board on this side, Long board on that side, but it's balanced. And that's the key. Verse 12 is the balancing point. That's the fulcrum. Verses 1 through 11 are on one side. They're talking about the problems that we have because of who we are. Sinfulness, life is brief, life is sinful, the problems that come as a result. When we get to verse 13 to the end of the psalm, we're going to see the balancing part. But the fulcrum's in the middle. What makes it balance? We balance it when we recognize the value of each day and when we gain wisdom. Notice what it says in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Teach us. Give us the ability to distinguish it and know it. Know how few our days really are so we can gain the wisdom like we gain harvest when the harvest time comes, when the corn ripens and the soybeans ripen and the wheat ripens and it all is brought in in the harvest. Let us harvest wisdom so we know what to do with each of these days that we have. Now, how many days do we have? Well, let's consider. The psalm has already said we may live 70 years, we may live 80 years. 70 years is 25,567 days. 80 years is 29,220 days. By the way, do you know what the average lifespan of the American man is? I'm going to tell you. Because I looked it up. And according to 2017, that's the latest statistic I could find, the average American man can expect to live 76 Point one years. By the way, the average American woman can expect to live 81.1 years. So the average American woman outlives the average American man by five years. That's average. Now, how long have you lived? Well, I did some calculation. I have lived 28,798 days. I'm past age 70, in case you haven't figured that out. I have 3,231 days still to go. Uh, no. What have I got there? 3,231 days ago. Oh, I passed age 70. That, that didn't come out the same on the, transparent, on the slide as it did when I did my notes. I passed age 70 3,231 days ago. That's what I'm trying to say. So I have 422 days left until age 80. I know, I only look like I'm about 55. Yeah, well, okay, so much for that. Uh, by the way, when my wife and I moved to Florida, I was 51 years old. No, I was 50 years old. 50 years old when we moved to Florida. In Florida, if you're a senior citizen, they give you a 10% discount almost every restaurant you go to. When we went to our first restaurant, they didn't even ask. They just gave me 10% off. And I took it. <laughs> yep, sure did. Uh, yeah, well, how many, how many days do I have left? I don't know. I'm past 70. I got 422 left until 80. Will I go past 80? Well, you, somebody might say, well, how, long, how, how old was your dad when he died? He was 64. So I'm past that. So they say, well, how old was your mom when she died? She was 99. So maybe I'll get there. There are mornings when I wake up. I don't think so. <laughs> but how many days do I have? I don't know, but I'd better count each one as precious. Because there's only so many, and they'll be gone. Only so many. Job 14 says, Man's days are determined. You, God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Pastor Reg read from Psalm 139. Let's review a verse your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
There's time to think. Before I was born, God had already determined how many days were going to be in my life book. And as long as I walk with him and please him and serve him, I'll live out those days. I think I can cut those days short by disobedience. But God knows, God knows how many days I've got left. I don't. So that means I'd better take care of each one and live it for him. Each one. As we go on, we see then our third major point. Our days are needful. We need to number our days because there are needs in those days. We have a need for pardon. Verse 13 to 15. Look what it says. Return, O Lord. How long will it be? Be sorry for your servants. We need God to be merciful, gracious, kind, forgiving to us. And guess what, friends? He wants to be that way. God wants to forgive us. He wants to pardon us. He wants us to be in his family. That's his desire. That's what he desired for Israel. It's what he desires for you and me. And he demonstrated it clearly when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Satisfy us, verse 14 says, in the morning with your loving kindness. That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. If I'm going to have any blessing, if I'm going to have any fellowship with God, I'm going to have to know because of his loving kindness toward me. And I can have that. It says in verse 15, make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us and the years we've seen evil. As we've had all these years of problems, we've had all these years of difficulty, we've had all this death out here in the wilderness, Lord, Moses says, I'm praying that you'll balance that off with your loving kindness, with your forgiveness, with your pardon, with your fellowship, so that we can have the joys of your life in our lives. That's the prayer of Moses. Teach us to number our days, Lord, that we can live this way. Experiencing your grace, your love, your kindness, your mercy every single morning. Let's number our days. He goes on, verse 16 and 17. We need a purpose. We need a purpose. The purpose is in verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. We need God's work to be evident in our lives. We need God to demonstrate himself in us, and he has through Christ. He has in your life and my life when we trust him. We need that. And then verse 17 goes on. It says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. God has done his work and now Moses says, Lord, confirm our works too. You have worked in us, so let us respond by glorifying you with our works and our life. That's what Moses is praying. That's what he wants for his people. That's what God wants for his people, for works that last. Notice the end of verse 17, confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. 
I heard somebody say a long time ago, when God repeats himself, it's not because he ran out of things to say. He repeats himself because he's trying to emphasize his point. Moses says, Lord, confirm the work of our hands. Now, in case you forgot, Lord, confirm the work of our hands. Let it be real. So what does all this mean? Well, let me tell you an event that happened back in 1986. Some of you will remember, those of you who were around in 1986, many of you were not. So just listen to the story. Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, and this was back when the space shuttle program was going well. And he said that he wanted to send a teacher in, on a shuttle ride. When he said that I was teaching at Grace Seminary, and I immediately said, I'm going to apply. And then he said it was for elementary school teachers through high school teachers, and that wiped me out. So I did not apply. But 11,500 teachers from across America applied to ride the space shuttle into space. One woman was chosen. There were five men and two women on board the space shuttle, January 28, 1986. And that is the Challenger as it's lifting off at Cape Canaveral. Krista McAuliffe was 37 years old at the time she got on board the space shuttle. She was a junior high school teacher who lived in Concord, New Hampshire. One of the things that made them choose her was because of her little brief statement of what her life mission was. She said, I touch the future, I teach. I touch the future, I teach. And Krista McAuliffe, along with six others, were on board the space shuttle that particular morning. 73 seconds after takeoff, this happened. And the Challenger exploded killed everybody on board and the remains of it fell into the Atlantic Ocean. When Krista McAuliffe got on board that space shuttle, she had no idea that her days were up. At 37 years of age, her days came to an end. But she said, I touch the future. I teach. So let me ask you, who's your life going to touch? Who's your life going to touch? Before your life touches anyone, there's a couple things you need to make sure of in your own life. You need to make sure, first of all, that your sins are confessed before God if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then you need to trust Christ for salvation. That's absolutely crucial. If we as God's people are ever going to really touch someone else for the glory of Christ, if our works are going to last for God, then we've got to make sure that we are right with him ourselves. We've got to make sure that our sins are confessed, that we're in a right relationship with the Lord. And if you're here and you've never personally trusted Jesus as your Savior from sin, that's where it must begin. And if you are a Christian, and probably most of us here are, 
then you have to make sure that those sins every day are confessed before God so you can live for him. So how do we go about this? How do we number our days? Let me give you what I practice. I seek to do this every day. Start every day. I do this at breakfast. I lay the newspaper off over here. I'm going to get to that eventually, I, I tell myself. And I've got my breakfast in front of me. And as I thank the Lord for my breakfast, I say, Lord, here's my plan for today. Now, in some of your cases, it'll be, Lord, my plan is to leave the house at 8 a.m. and drive to work. And I'm going to spend eight hours, nine hours at my job. I'm going to eat lunch. I'm going to take a couple of breaks. That, that's how I'm gonna, then I'm going to drive back home. When I get home tonight, I'm going to mow the yard. I'm going to you know, have uh, things to do. I'm going to eat dinner, be with my family. I'm going to watch two educational TV shows, Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. <laughs> right? You know, and, and I'm going to go to bed at 10 p.m. That's going to be my day, Lord. All right, Lord, this is my plan for the day. And then say, Lord, you can approve it. You can modify it, or you can change it completely. And there have been times when the Lord has modified my day, and there have been those occasions when it has totally changed. But in either case, day, Lord, I give this day to you. Start your day. And then determine that you're going to live each of those days for him. And if you do that, you won't be able to say, I touch the future, I teach. What you can say is, I touch eternity because I serve my living God. And that's far better. I touch eternity with my life. So Lord, help me to number my days. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you in these closing moments, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done in our lives and for us through your word and through the living word, Jesus Christ, who came to give himself for us. Father, for those who might be here this morning or who might be watching online who've never trusted Jesus Christ as their savior from sin, let this be the day when their hearts would be touched and their lives would be open to him and bring them to Christ. And for those of us who know you, Lord, let us determine we're going to live every single day to the glory and honor of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.